I'm Michael Cross, host of the KOSU Daily Podcast. Every weekday, I bring you the biggest Oklahoma stories of the day with reporting and analysis from our team of journalists and partners. Get the news you need to start your day in less than 10 minutes. Find the KOSU Daily in your podcast feed and subscribe now. This Week in Oklahoma Politics is sponsored by Oklahoma State Medical Association, physicians dedicated to providing and increasing access to health care for all Oklahomans. More on its vision and mission at okmed.org. For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. State lawmakers are pushing through the largest ever state budget at nearly $13 billion. The budget includes increased funding for education, health care, and state building renovations. While proposed cuts to the grocery tax, personal income tax, and corporate income tax won't happen this year, smaller cuts and a tax credit for family caregivers were approved. Neva, what do you think of this budget? Well, I think, again, as we talk about, there are no perfect budgets, but this process, uh, I think, thankfully, in the minds of many lawmakers this week, is moving uh, swiftly toward the the uh, uh, end of session of, on Friday, sine die, 5 p.m., but the concurrent special session continuing on. And it appears this week, even though they got a slow, a little bit of a slow start, they were still working behind closed doors and negotiating and, and doing the give and take. They ultimately did come up with a budget that is now moving through the process Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, uh, with the expectation that they'll get their work done, probably come back in the date that's being bandied about of June 12th uh, to do overrides as necessary uh, with with regard to the budget. As we've talked about before on the program, the governor very likely to take his pen to that and uh, um, and they'll have to deal with that in the aftermath. But when you really look at this, you're right. I mean, historic record-setting record um, amount for education, uh, a lot of things that we've discussed across the board uh, in terms of the big items um, seem to be uh, have been addressed and with some reasonable satisfaction, I think, on both sides, House and Senate. Um, the 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 house didn't get uh, tax relief like they had wanted. They they basically pulled back on that, but they did. The concession was the elimination of the uh, franchise tax, which is about a fifty five million dollars savings uh, for uh, businesses uh, that will begin next year uh, if it makes it all the way to the finish line, as many suspect. And then the uh, so called the so called uh, income tax uh, um, marriage. Uh, income tax marriage penalty, they call it, uh, which really is about modifying the tax bracket for joint filers so that there's not the discrepancy between, you know, a single filer and a, and a, uh, a married couple. So uh, that's about a $20, $20 million um, uh, out of the budget if they'd left that in, I mean, out of the uh, coffers for the state. So there, there were some, there was some give and take. A lot of the bills as, as, as we would go through them, um, and a lot of folks are just like we are, I think, pouring through them right now. We'll have to wait for the dust to settle. But uh, a lot of a lot of the things that were talked about, many of which uh, uh, people thought might not make it, 
appear to be kind of getting getting uh, getting close to the finish line. There are some losers, clearly. I think, you know, when you look at uh, areas like uh, oil and gas, we talked about the tax incentives that uh, had been on the table that uh, that they were wanting for some of the uh, conversation earlier in session. That appears to have, uh, at least at this point, looks like it may not be a go, which uh, uh, I think for some is a surprise. But I, I think when you look at some of the other kind of innovative things they've tried to do, uh, you when you unpack that 13 billion, as you say, and you take uh, uh, you take the allocation to the state agencies, and then you start drilling down into the specific appropriations for programs for uh, whatever they are um, uh, tackling, um, we'll just have to see kind of how this how this plays out. But there have been some close votes in the Senate. I think it was 25-20 um, was the vote to get the uh, OK Pops Museum uh, bill mm -hmm. out of the Senate. Uh, and that was with uh, some apparent arm twisting to uh, to get it out with uh, with the House, at least at this point, as we're talking, having not taken action, uh, whether that happens or not. There, there is always this give and take in the details, but you, but I think the overall takeaway is that the, as they, as we always talk about, the House and the Senate found a way to uh, get a budget uh, struck and move forward. The governor is probably the one that uh, many would say is the loser in the equation because of many of the things that he advocated for frankly, fell on deaf ears and did not happen. So one of those things being the Panasonic deal, the $245 million we've talked about, they appropriated $145 million is what the, what the number is in this package. So does that extra $100 million uh, kill the deal or in the estimation of at least uh, the House Appropriations uh, Chair, uh, Kevin Wallace, I mean, he basically said, uh, this is close to what it was when the conversations initially uh, started, so it should be good enough to get the deal done if it's a real deal. So you've got you've got some real flexing of the muscle on some of these things, um, and I think that in the overall, it'll be interesting to see how the governor responds to all of this and how much of a mess the legislature gets to look at in early June in terms of trying to make some overrides if they choose to. Right. Well, and that's right. And the special session, which is where all of these budget bills have been taking place, uh, or, or as we mentioned last week, the extraordinary session, uh, is where all of these budget bills have been taking place. So uh, they have adjourned to the call of the chair uh, at this point, uh, as Neva said, coming back in early June. So they'll have the potential uh, or the possibility to override any vetoes uh, that the governor may have. So the, the budget may not be done. I mean, they will still be in special session. If the governor uh, has vetoes measures and they want to override, they could still ostensibly pass uh, further appropriation bills uh, in response to the vetoes or some negotiations with the governor. You know, really, we saw that extraordinary special session come about because of this pressure cooker situation um, that resulted from most of the legislative session being held hostage by the education debate between the two chambers and then to the governor to some extent. Um, and so once that was settled, there wasn't a lot of time uh, for legislative leaders to begin putting together a budget. Um, and it wasn't really until Tuesday of this week that most members, uh, Republicans or Democrats, really began to see actual numbers uh, for these for these uh, budget appropriations for different state agencies, for different programs, different, uh, you know, different policies. Um, and all of that was worked out 
really at the last minute. And you know, I think that uh, you can say that the people, uh, the appropriations chair uh, uh, in the House, Kevin Wallace, and the A and B chair in the Senate, Roger Thompson, they did a Herculean effort. But I think that you know that doesn't necessarily mean that the process uh, should have to call for that uh, because trying to put all of this together um, at the last minute. Uh, there, you know, they 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 caught a, a Scrivener's error in one of the appropriations for DEQ, where it was initially uh, they were they meant to appropriate five hundred and thirty-one thousand uh, dollars to a program, and they ended up appropriating five hundred and thirty-one million dollars. Uh, which, you know, I'm not great at math, but I think that those numbers are a little far apart. Uh, they they caught that and were were able to fix it, but. There's probably other stuff in this. Um, whenever you're trying to put together a budget of, you know, this is, I, I think that I can remember whenever our state budgets were three or four billion dollars. Mm -hmm. uh, so the fact that we're appropriating seventeen billion dollars uh, or or better for the state of Oklahoma uh, is, I mean, this is an historic amount of spending, um, and it will once we begin to pull out all of the different pieces of this. I know that. House and Senate Democrats, uh, you know, feel like a lot of the investments that could have been made with this historic appropriation weren't, uh, and instead, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars were spent on things like uh, private school vouchers and tax credits that were um, necessary in some part to get the education deal done between the Republicans in the House and the Senate. And so you saw a lot of money that could have gone to core services being spent instead on things like private school vouchers for families that are probably already sending their kids to private school. Um, then there's some other things. I'm, as Neva said, you know, it'll be interesting to see what the governor does when he's at his desk. There were some appropriations yesterday uh, that really caught my eye, um, and they weren't appropriations; they were cuts. Uh, Oklahoma Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs took about a sixty percent cut uh, in their budget. Uh, Oklahoma Medical Marijuana Authority took about a twenty percent cut in their budget. Those are huge decreases. Now. Uh, I think the, the idea is, is that they'll be able to offset some of that uh, loss in appropriated dollars with new fees that they're able to assess on uh, medical marijuana businesses. Um, but it does seem odd at a time whenever the state really seems intent on getting a handle on the medical marijuana program and reducing the number of licenses out there and ensuring that the folks that do have licenses are responsible operators, that you would take away funding from the very from the two uh, chief regulatory uh, agencies in the state that oversee the medical marijuana program. Uh, so I'm, I'm interested to see, especially on those, uh, when the governor has his line item veto power that he has with, uh, with appropriations, whether or not he comes back and he says, no, we need to make sure that these agencies have what they need and we should not give them perverse disincentives uh, to try to keep the number of licensees at a high level and at an artificially high level just so that they can have the revenue that they need to operate. We just need to give them the dollars that they need to operate. Um, that's just a couple. And like I said, for something that came together uh, with, with this much money and came together really in 48 hours, uh, at least for most, most public eyes, um, as we begin to unpack it, what else is going to be in there? Well, and, you know, and let's remember, I mean, they've been talking budget all year long. Uh, so the, the details of this, while it's all coming together in, in these big packages and, and a lot of bills flying back and forth between the House and the Senate to be voted on this week, 
the reality is there have been a lot of specific discussions on much of this. I mean, for instance, if you looked at the uh, Department of Corrections, one of the largest agencies uh, after education, uh, and you look at their appropriations, you'd see it as a flat, you know, basically a flat line. And yet uh, the explanation, according to, again, these A and B chairs, when they start talking details, uh, the the point was made that there was $41 million in carryover funds that that would be added into uh, into their budget. So it, it changes it changes the perspective dramatically. And I think I think the other thing to uh, talk about in terms of we're talking this big budget in the overall number uh, number of bills and the amount appropriated in this package overall, we also are seeing I think it's about it'll be a, probably beyond $3.6 billion in savings that the state will still have in what the so-called rainy day fund and some of the other stabilization funds. So the state is still in a very strong position. Um, and even some of the initial numbers that earlier in the week uh, actually came down. I think uh, one of the figures that was tossed around was uh, that the final amount was about 300 million under what they had really been negotiating and talking about over the weekend. So we'll 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 watch with interest, and I think this is a discussion, you know, probably worth uh, continuing um, in the next several weeks. Attorney General Gettner Drummond is promising to not enforce the state's ban on gender affirming health care for minors. Drummond made the statements as federal litigation of the law moves forward. The state's top prosecutor says he's not conceding anything or acknowledging any harm, but non-enforcement allows more time for a challenge to the law. Ryan, does this surprise you? It's what a responsible opposing counsel should do. Uh, it, it is surprising if you think about the track record that we've had with our most recent attorney generals. I, I think the idea that uh, former Attorney General John O'Connor would have done something like this, uh, there's there's no way um, he, he would have said that he wouldn't agree to this because he would be afraid that it would be a signal that he was somehow uh, against this new law. Um, he would he would have allowed um, politics. This is my presumption, of course, that he would have allowed politics to interfere with sound uh, legal practice, uh, you know, surprise when, when when elected officials do that. So it is kind of a surprise to see the now attorney general say, wait a second, you know, we uh, this doesn't mean that I'm conceding anything on the on the challenge to this law. The state is going to still uh, defend the law, which he is his constitutional obligation uh, to defend the law uh, in this litigation. But it is a recognition that if the state loses uh, the, this litigation, um, moving forward to allow its implementation in the meantime would cause very significant and irreparable harm to individuals uh, that would be affected by the implementation of this law and the enforcement of this law across the state of Oklahoma. So I, I think that it's a, a very you know solid legal position for the attorney general to take. Um, and you know congratulations to the ACLU of Oklahoma and their legal partners in um, putting together what I believe is a, a very strong case that demonstrate a, a number of constitutional uh, infirmities with this new law uh, and the effect that it will have on minors and their parents in the state of Oklahoma. Um, and I, I think that this will, this will allow uh, the judicial process to move forward in a way where we're not running up against some deadline in the next few months, uh, because th we know that federal litigation takes a long time. And uh, if, if this didn't happen, uh, and we had to wait even on waiting on a court to put in an injunction, which wouldn't necessarily be uh, you know, a certainty. Uh, 
um, you know, this takes a lot of the urgency off of the table and allows both sides, um, the those representing uh, trans youth in Oklahoma and their parents uh, and the attorney general's office uh, to move forward with cooler heads and, and mount their legal cases and present them in front of a federal judge. Geneva. You know, it's interesting. <laughs> it was if you listen to the comments by both the governor and the attorney general, you would think neither one was paying attention or listening to the other because they they really kind of crisscrossed and made no sense. If you were just a casual observer, because you had the governor last Friday at his news conference basically come out, uh, you know, talking about how disappointed he was, how confused he was by uh, what had happened with the uh, attorney general's decision you know, then reiterating, you know, his strong, um, forceful uh, position that not only did he sign, you know, Senate Bill 613, but he, he that they, he absolutely was going to uh, see it in force. And then you had the attorney general basically coming out with a statement saying, look, we will continue to defend um, uh, and fulfill our duty of defending, you know, this, this legislation, but that this temporary stay uh, allows more time, as you say, Ryan, from a legal perspective to mount, uh, in the words of the attorney general's office, the strongest possible defense on on this particular uh, piece of legislation that's been signed. So, um, you know, the idea that um, uh, that these guys used it as a little bit of a sparring match uh, uh, to, um, to kind of uh, gin this up with the backdrop. I mean, let's be clear. I mean, this is, as we've talked about, a national story. I mean, you had the Nebraska governor this week, I think on Monday, sign a similar piece of legislation uh, in in into law. You have the Texas governor uh, with a similar piece of legislation sitting on his desk, ex expected to be signed. Um, and you've got it over a dozen states, I think, the last time I counted, that have enacted similar uh, restrictions. So, uh, this is going to be an ongoing national uh, conversation, and certainly these states, I mean, we're going to see uh, what we're seeing in Oklahoma, Texas, Nebraska, and across the, you know, across the country continue to be a topic of serious conversation. And this could go on for a very long time. I mean, we could be in a situation where we end up with different federal circuits ruling different ways that could put us in a, a situation where it, this ultimately lands in front of the United States Supreme Court. That could be years from now. Um, and the idea that uh, that kids in Oklahoma and their parents, that um, their physicians in, in consultation with their physicians need this health care, um, that they would have to worry that at any day uh, that, you know, there's this there's this looming deadline. This needs to be worked out. And, you know, if, if this is going to be enforced, it only needs to be enforced, which it, it, sh it should never be enforced. But if it is going to be enforced, it should only be enforced after uh, the resolution of these legal issues. Another veto from Governor Stitt includes legislation to change the makeup of the Oklahoma Turnpike Authority Board. House Bill 2263 would have allowed the members to be picked by leaders of the House and Senate rather than just the governor. Stitt says having a majority of appointments made by the legislative branch would be unconstitutional. Neva, what do you think of this latest veto? Well, I think it was not a surprise. Even the uh, House author, uh, Representative Sterling, said uh, he wasn't surprised at this. He did he did challenge the assertion by the governor that uh, that uh, this House bill is unconstitutional. And I think I think this is the big question here. The governor is saying that it's unconstitutional and not right that uh, 
that the legislature should be in a position to basically have a majority of the board board appointments. And yet right now it's the governor who has exclusive uh, control of the board and the appointment. So uh, his idea and his his uh, words of trying to paint the case that this was, uh, you know, a well paved road, I think, to a legal dead end was one of the the quotes that I read um, just doesn't doesn't seem to square up and certainly would lend to the thinking that uh, uh, many, many expect that uh, that this particular uh, veto ultimately uh, will be overridden. And there's certainly been strong support across the board in the House and the Senate uh, with respect to the the issues that have been raised about the uh, Turnpike Authority, about the uh, um, the uh, five billion dollar, the 15 year uh, toll road expansion, uh, which uh, has, um, you know, has been back and forth and the Supreme Court even weighed in uh, this week uh, with uh, uh, with their decision on it. But you've got an investigative audit that's still going on. You've got a lot of things swirling around. And then you've got this issue of who the appointees are going to be. So we'll see who wins on this. But again, it's a, it's a dust up between the governor and the legislature. And at this point, it would seem the legislature may have the better hand in in uh, in this particular case ryan yeah absolutely i think it'll be overridden uh and it'll you know it'll be up to the governor whether or not yeah you know, if the governor believes that they've got a legal theory to challenge that as a violation of separation of powers then they, they may very well pursue that uh before the state supreme court and and they would decide that but uh you know we see uh, a lot of other agencies and boards and commissions uh, in the state of Oklahoma, where you have executive appointees and legislative appointees uh, serving side by side, uh, that is uh, that 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 is nothing new uh, in the in the state of Oklahoma. the The issue that uh, that I think is a surprise is that this is uh, one of the only bill that I think has actually hit the governor's desk. And correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Deborah and Michael, uh, that would begin to rein in some of the executive powers that were granted to this governor early in his first term. Um, you know, there is a lot of talk about doing something along the lines, something like this along the lines with uh, the tourism uh, department uh, and their board. Uh, and there are just in general, the idea, I think that the legislature has buyer's remorse uh, with giving this governor uh, the this expanded executive authority that no other governor in the state's history has ever enjoyed, giving this governor that power um, and to see the governor and see how he wields it. And um, I think, you know, nobody should be surprised with that. It's it probably won't stop with Governor Stitt. I think that, uh, you know, when, it, when we're looking at whoever the next governor is in the state of Oklahoma, if they still have these executive uh, powers, they're probably going to exercise them, you know, Republican or Democrat. If you've got the power, you're going to flex it. That's just the way it works. And so the legislature, um, again, might if there's anything surprising to me about this whole thing is that this is the only real rollback that we've seen uh, uh, in the executive powers that this governor saw expanded early in his term. You know, it's interesting, too, talking about the uh, these boards and just the actions by the legislature trying to rein things in. Or having that discussion, we also saw this week with the uh, uh, in the budget uh, for the State Department of Education, we saw Representative uh, Mark McBride uh, come out and basically uh, put strings on on the uh, money, so to speak, to say that that the superintendent could not reject um, 
federal grants that were previously pursued by the agency. So there's going to be an, a directive if this ultimately, you know, is signed, sealed, and delivered. And that's going to be an interesting, uh, interesting thing to watch because uh, the reaction from uh, Superintendent Walters was basically a two-word tweet that said, that's cute. So if you want to, you know, if you want to crank it up with the legislature, uh, that's probably a pretty good way to continue doing it if with those kinds of uh, a response from Twitter land. So uh, surprising, but I think this is part of this overarching conversation of, you know, what's going to happen and why. The governor with his uh, two-year state tribal contract extension agreement, mm -hmm. again, the legislature, you know, pretty well telling him we're going to be deciding this, not you. And uh, it appears the indication is that the governor's not going to get his way on that. So um, when the dust settles and we see winners and losers, it's going to be an interesting scorecard to tabulate. And even though it's an, a similar separation of powers issue, uh, the, the Martin McBride, the representative Martin McBride amendment uh, to that legislation that would uh, require or prohibit the superintendent Ryan Walters from, you know, not or from rejecting these uh, federal grants that the state had uh, previously previously received. Um, does the governor veto that? Mm -hmm. uh, and I I think that the governor's in a tough position there because if the governor vetoes that on the grounds that it's a violation of separation of powers, and then that enables Superintendent Walters to then uh, you know continue to uh, be derelict in his obligation. Uh, to go out and fight for as many federal dollars for Oklahoma students and educators as possible, uh, or does he, you know, go ahead and sign this law and say, "Listen, you know, this is finally something, uh, Superintendent Walters, that you've got to fight on your own. If you think it's a an issue with your uh, department and with your constitutional powers, you need to fight that. Uh, but otherwise, you need to go comply with this law, and I'm not going to step back and prevent the legislature from holding your feet to the fire and going out and getting these federal dollars." And holding your feet to the fire ultimately could lead in the in the in the worst case scenario um, for an elected official would be for the legislature to uh, start down the road of impeachment. So um, I think certainly everyone would uh, probably say that that's a long long way from being a serious conversation. But the fact that the legislature felt it imperative to move this direction with an elected official and the education department with the largest budget in the state of Oklahoma and in history, um, it's a serious it's a serious point to be looked at. Mark your calendars, folks. End of May, you heard impeachment first on This Week in Oklahoma <laughs> Politics. Uh <laughs> I said it was a long way away, and I said, <laughs> however, I, I do think that, that, it, that it does bode to the to, to the point of how serious this conversation needs to be, and the fact that the state could be um, could be on the hook for millions of dollars if we don't you know, if we don't fulfill our contractual obligations on grants we currently have, and there are a lot of questions out there that lawmakers are still asking, trying to get that information. And I think we'll see some of this uh, continue to bubble up and uh, be talked about through the summer and into the fall. The announcement by the University of Central Oklahoma to name former Lieutenant Governor Todd Lamb as its next president is getting some pushback. The school's largest donor, Paycom CEO Chad Richeson, sent a letter saying Lamb is unqualified to lead the university and faculty leaders say they are deeply troubled at the lack of transparency and impartiality in the search process to hire Lamb. 
Ryan, do you think these protests will have any impact on UCO's decision? I don't think that they'll have any impact uh, at all. The decision's been made. I think walking the decision back right now, uh, you know, with an open letter from their top donor, uh, you know, I think uh, that would be a bigger disaster for the university than being crossways with their top donor right now. I, you know, I think moving forward, their their best uh, strategy should be to try to build a bridge between the incoming president uh, Todd Lamb and Chad Richardson, Chad Richardson at PACOM. Um, and, you know, whether or not that can be done, who knows, but I don't think that we're going to see the university rescind its offer to uh, Lieutenant Governor Todd Lamb. Um, and I think that you'll see him serve as the next president. Now, you know, how long does he stay in that position? That's been a, it's been a pretty rocky position over the last few years as it is. Um, and I, I can tell you, having had very good friends that have become university presidents, that have had very demanding jobs prior to that, uh, they will all tell you that it is the hardest job that they've ever had in their entire life, uh, that it is extraordinarily demanding of, of your time, of your energy, um, and it is uh, something that you don't just walk into and, and kick your feet up. Uh, if you're going to do that job and do it well, you're engaged uh, in it from the time you wake up and usually uh, well after the time that you would otherwise go to bed because you're out at, at, at functions, events, you're meeting with fundraisers uh, like Chad Richardson and and trying to build and develop the university itself. So um, it, it is, I, um, it is, you know, I don't, I don't want to say that it's uh, unusual to see a top donor uh, weigh in this way, uh, because if you're investing that much money in a university and you care about the their mission and uh, you, you believe in it, then obviously you want to see it being shepherded by leadership that you have confidence in. Um, but uh, I, ultimately, um, what what I imagine will happen here is very soon, if it hasn't already, uh, there will be an invitation for a sit down meeting with uh, Todd Lamb and, and Chad Richardson so that they can begin to you know, think about uh, how to move forward from here. Neva. Well, and I think uh, I think this is a public uh, kind of a, a public back and forth that is no surprise to all of the inside players. I mean, this is certainly uh, not unusual in university circumstances at times when you have very large or in the instance in the instance of UCO, the the described largest donor in Paycom CEO, Chad Richardson, that they that they expect and want to. Uh, to have their voice heard, they want to. Uh, um, uh, they care passionately about the university, or they wouldn't be uh, putting that kind of money into whether it's their alma mater or a, a college or university they um, feel very strongly about. But in this instance, um, you know, I think it was um, from a public standpoint. Reading it, when you see someone that has that connection to a university, and they don't just take a swipe, they talk about you know political favors and somebody who is absolutely um, a career politician with no leadership or management experience talking about the fact that uh, that uh, what a terrible decision this was. Um, the board was very quick to uh, basically stand up and say, look, after a national search, after our final interviews, this was this was our pick. We support and stand behind Todd Lamb 100 percent. And, uh, and then went on to really characterize many of the reasons why they felt he was the right person for the job right now. And I think that, uh, you know, people can agree to disagree. I mean, the, the board basically said, 
that they had disagreed with uh, Mr. Richardson's opinion, but that they would fight for his right to say it. So um, it's part of it's part of the give and take in the process. And when people um, if they have another candidate or they uh, have a different idea of the type of leader they want, this is the exchange that's going to happen. But at the end of all of it, I think when you look and the dust settles, Todd Lamb is perfectly situated uh, with his resume, his background, uh, clearly his um, uh, love for this this university. It's not his alma mater, but you know, by his own admission, he's taken a number of classes at UCO. He's someone that, um, it, from all indications, is ready to dive in and get the job done. And you're right, Ryan. I mean, you're coming into some pretty dire circumstances. I mean, the last president um, um, was there only three years. I mean, there was a not only a decline in, during that time, a decline in state funding, a decline in enrollment. You had um, you had a lot of things that occurred on that watch. You had uh, increases in tuition and class size. You had uh, elimination of a, a number of staff. You had uh, basically a student walkout uh, 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 last fall, or you know, really uh, at least trying to demonstrate the, their concerns. So it's an atmosphere where there's there that's the backdrop, but the look forward. Even Todd Lamb, listening to him and some of his early comments. I mean, he's he's focusing on workforce areas like uh, aero, aerospace and uh, engineering technology, places where he believes the university can uh, really be a pace setter and do some great things. And for all of higher ed, I mean, we saw higher ed have a budget increase this year, substantial, career tech, substantial, as well as common ed. So there's a tremendous focus in our state on education as it should be. Uh, one of the preeminent conversations, and I think uh, Todd Lamb, as the, I believe, 22nd uh, incoming president on July 1 uh, for UCO, uh, certainly uh, has a, uh, um, I think, has an uh, incredible opportunity to really make his mark in higher ed. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at donate.kosu.org. This Week in Oklahoma Politics is sponsored by Oklahoma State Medical Association, physicians dedicated to providing and increasing access to health care for all Oklahomans. More on its vision and mission at okmed.org.